Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert. I'm Simone Malaz with Restore Retreat. Hi, Jacques. Hey, Simone. How are you this Thursday? You just broke your headphones. I accidentally did. I was able to fix it right before the show. It was kind BJ of a pain. BJ's going to punish you. BJ is our star producer, uh, for those of you who don't know. But uh, but no, we were able to get it fixed and handled before coming on air, thankfully. We have a lot to talk about this week already. And, and we have a bit of breaking news. Yeah, there was a big announcement that came out yesterday from the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. It's an announcement I think we've all been waiting for with bated breath. Um, they are moving forward with scoping meetings for the Mid-Barataria sediment diversion. Yeah, so that's always just a, a lot of information to handle about, well, didn't you just have us go to some public meetings and to say, no, that was on the master plan, you know, and so we want to help clarify what this meeting's about. It's for a specific project, what the process is. So we're going to talk about, about it a little bit more on the show, but why don't you give us some quick details right now? Yeah, so basically scoping process is what um, the Army Corps of Engineers needs to do to put together a, an environmental impact statement in order to issue a permit to actually construct the diversion. Right. So it's kind of the first step in the process. And what's really important is the public is able to give input and ask questions and have them consider things for the, that document. Um, and there are three upcoming public scoping meetings in July. The first is July 20th in Lafitte, then July 25th in Bellchase, and July 27th in Port Sulphur. So a lot in the so Plaquemines yeah, in the area. Next two weeks or so. And right. you can go on our Facebook page, um, Mississippi Restore the Mississippi River Delta, to get information on those events, locations, times, and we'll have more um, in a few weeks. Yeah, it gives us a good opportunity here on Delta Dispatches to focus on, you know, kind of what to expect if you're interested in going to a meeting like that. Uh, some of the things that you can talk about at these meetings. And um, so hopefully we'll talk about that on a, on a future episode of Delta Dispatches. But on this one, uh, we have two topics that are just happen to be in the news quite a bit. Um, lately, it's been two topics that we've wanted to cover for a while, uh, both dealing with some problems that we have along our coast, but of the invasive kind. Yeah, invasive species. So, I mean, for those of you who have lived in Louisiana, obviously you're familiar with nutria and the problems they cause. Um, so we're going to be talking about that first with a representative from Quipra and the yep. program they have. Right. And then we're going to have Dr. Andy Nyman back on the show at the second half to talk about this uh, insect, the scale that is just devastating rosocane across the coast. And it's kind of a new problem. Yeah, yeah. And both are, are impacting areas all along the coast and certainly part of the world where I grew up and where we work in, Terrebonne and Lafouche, but also Plaquemine, St. Bernard, other places, both um, are having problems with these particular issues. So... Let's get right into it. Um, we are uh, lucky to be joined today by Nikki Cavalier, who is the Community Outreach and Media Specialist from Quipra. And Quipra stands for the Coastal Wetlands Planning and Protection Restoration Act. Uh, welcome to Delta Dispatches, Nikki. Hey, great to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for joining. So Nikki and I have a mutual friend in our great Victoria. So yeah. thank you for being on. Uh, we'll get Victoria on the show one day. She's doing something important this week. So, she, uh, Miss uh, Louisiana. <laughs> Miss Louisiana, United for, States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we wish her luck. Um, so, Nikki, um, let's start out. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, but certainly why don't you tell us more about what Quipra even is? I mean, we've talked about it. We talk about it a lot here, but it's, it's kind of one of those long acronyms, but it's important to coastal Louisiana. So tell us a little bit about yourself and about Quipra. 
Uh, right. So I am originally from Prairieville, Louisiana, which is a little bit south of Baton Rouge, but I've been living in Lafayette for about nine years now, and that's where our um, outreach office for Quipra is located. Um, and I've been working with Quipra for about three years. Great, great. Yeah, y'all are, uh, I think, USGS. Y'all have a couple of yeah. guys over there. Yeah, we um, hope to talk to Brady in the next couple of weeks about some oh, of his great. work, too. So, yeah. yeah. So, Quipra is actually some federal legislation that's been a long, been around for a while, right, Nikki? Correct. So, um, we're federal legislation, and we were enacted in 1990. Yeah, and so that was, um, so you may know it, or some people may know it as the BRO Act, mm-hmm. um, but really it was, um, <clears throat> and correct me if I'm wrong, Nikki, if I'm getting my history wrong on this, but it was a, a dedicated uh, tax on small gas engine tax sales, something very specific. Um, but it was dedicated to coastal Louisiana to identify, prepare, and fund coastal restoration projects. And and for the longest time, um, while it was in, enacted in 1990, it was one of the few funding sources that we had for um, for coastal restoration. That's correct. And uh, we're a super unique kind, too, because we, uh, we're one of the, I think maybe one of the only groups that combines, you know, federal and state. So we're managed by five federal agencies and also the state of, Delu- of Louisiana. Yeah. It's- so, yeah, so our projects are funded 85% federal and 15% state. It's been an excellent example of how partners can work together. Definitely. And, you know, it's referred to as the Bro Act because Senator John Bro, who was in office at the time, helped pass it. So, Nikki, tell us a little bit about some of the projects that have been made possible through Quipper funding. Um, so, as of right now, we have 154 active projects. Um, and so, these range from uh, marsh creation to shoreline protection, terracing, hydrology, vegetative plantings. All of the above, we do it. And we talk a lot about the, you know, coastal master plan here. So is Quipra one of the sources of funding for the master plan and some of those projects? Yeah, so all of our Quipra projects are compliant with the master plan. And then um, CPRA acts as our state funding source for all of our projects. So 154 projects, that's, that's a lot. I, I knew it was a lot, but I didn't think it was that many. <laughs> like, like, but you're, like, what kind of price tags do some of these projects have? Or like, what kind of money are we talking about, Nikki? Uh, well, our whole um, project each year, we I mean, our whole program um, gets about, oh, I want to say it's about $72 million. Yeah, yeah. So not, not <laughs> insignificant million. money, right? Yeah, you know, no. if you tell somebody like um, 154 projects, they'd say that's great. But if it's, you know, only $10,000 a project, but... You know, the, the budget for, I think, Quipper ranges anywhere between 30 to $80 million, and, and that includes design, planning, and construction. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, a really significant um, program here for our coast. Yeah. And Nikki, so I, oh, oh, sir, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was going to say, and if you look at the acreages, it's it's about like 97,000 acres that we've protected, created, restored so far. So that's, that's a significant way to look at it as well. Yeah, definitely a sizable footprint. Mm-hmm. And I know... Um, you know, I saw a recent Facebook post that you all share because you have such a great outreach um, and education yep. arm. Easy to share. Um, but uh, I think it was a, a CPRA video of one of the marsh creation projects that are underway that you're helping to fund. So is, tell us about some of the projects that are ongoing or kind of teed up from, from uh, Quipra. Yeah, so we just recently started active, uh, active dredging for marsh creation in both Bayou Bonfuca, which is in St. Tammany, and uh, Don't say Oyster that too Bayou. fast, huh, Nikki? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Oyster Bayou, which is in Cameron. Um, and so those are going to be really great marsh creation projects. Um, and I, we've also got a really exciting um, invasive species project 
as well uh, that was approved in January, and that one's going to be to combat um, giant salvinia, uh, which is one of the invasive plant species that we have. So that's going to be very exciting as well. So, Nikki, y'all, y'all, um, to just kind of finish our quipper talk, and then after the break, we'll get back into another kind of invasive species. But y'all do um, projects per basin, right? And y'all do a call for projects. You have a process. And so why don't you tell us just a little bit about that? Um, so every year, um, usually around the end of January, beginning of February, uh, is when we hold our regional planning team meetings. Um, and so we have four different regions where we have those, and landowners, parish representatives, state and federal representatives can all come together and propose the projects that they would like to see done in their area. Um, from each of those meetings, uh, I want to say we get about 10 projects from each, and then yeah. throughout the year, um, that list just dwindles down until we get our final, uh, we call it a PPL, which is a priority project list. And so usually the January task force meeting of the next year will have about four or five projects that move on to engineering and design. And we're going to talk about one of the specific projects after the break. But first, Nikki, I want to um, ask, I know you do a lot of great outreach and online engagement. So tell folks where they can go to learn more about your projects um, and the funding source on your website, Twitter, Facebook, all of that good stuff. Yes, so we are all over social media for sure, Facebook and Twitter. It's at Quipra. Um, and then our website is lacoast.gov, and you can find fact sheets for all of our projects and different publications that we have. Great. And so after the break, we're going to come back and talk about Nutria specifically. I know. Um, and really a lot of the good work and the program that you all have to combat this invasive species. You're listening to Delta Dispatches, um, and we'll be back right after the break. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore a Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. This is Simone Laws of Restore Retreat. I'm joined by Jacques Hebert of Audubon, Louisiana. Welcome back. We also want to welcome back Nikki from Quipera. Thank you for hanging with us, Nikki. 
Thanks for having me. Um, let's talk about the swamp rat a little. Right. Um, uh, so Victoria uh, wrote a, a blog for us that she also uh, wrote for Quipper as well. And um, it's friend or foe. And most people think that they're probably furry little ugly boogers, but they don't understand how much they really can hurt Louisiana. So Nikki, why don't you tell us a little bit about why Nutria, like how they even came here and, um, and why they're harmful to our coast. Right, so uh, the nutria was first brought here from South America in about the 1930s uh, to be used for the fur trade. But um, since, I don't know, I want to say around the Jack, 80s. you got a nutria fur coat? <laughs> I actually have a nutria fanny pack but from I, that Top is, Bags. That's, from, that's for it's a whole other show to discuss. An amazing uh, accessory. Uh, I bet it is. Sorry about that, Nikki. <laughs> So uh, since about the 80s, you know, fur has drastically declined. Um, so that's left, you know, these animals who have these massive appetites for plants and a super high reproductive rate as well. Um, so they rapidly consume our marsh plants, um, especially the ones that really anchor into yeah, the Yeah, they like the roots, right? Or, mm-hmm. And they exactly. really dig in. Yep. Yep. So... Uh, and we've had, you know, annual surveys that have showed that um, without any sort of program, that uh, the nutria can cause about, you know, 80,000 acres of damage at any given time. It's hard to believe, but I mean, that, that something so small and, and, you know, brought to Louisiana for a whole nother purpose can do so much damage. But we see that time and time again, somebody brought it, you know, something, someone brought something in for what they thought was a good reason, but here it is all these all these years later and it's caused so much damage but nikki y'all have some programs in place and y'all work with wildlife and fisheries to keep that population down as much as you can yeah so um we have what's called the coastwide nutria control program um and we selected this program in 2002 um so it works to reduce the damage caused by the nutria um with an economic incentive payment of five dollars per nutria tail a bounty Yes, like a bounty. <laughs> <laughs> um, so participants with um, a valid Louisiana trapping license can sign up on the website and participate in the program. And have you all seen a lot of progress since enacting the program? I mean, it's been, wow, like must 15 years? Uh, yeah. So uh, I want to say this past year, 2016, um, I think it was only down to about 65,000 acres that were impacted instead of, you know, what could have been 80,000. Yeah. Nutria, it sounds like from what you said about, you know, how much they eat, they, so I saw somewhere that they consume like 25% of their weight daily. I mean, that's how much they eat and they reproduce like crazy, Mm -hmm. but so you have to stay on top of something like that, right, Nikki? Or, or like you said, very quickly, you can turn back to as damaging as it was before the control. Yeah, exactly. So we, you know, we try and um, encourage uh, a harvest of 40,000 nutria annually, not 40,000, 400,000. Nice. Wow. And so, I mean, obviously it's a coastwide problem. If I'm a trapper who's listening in and I want to get out there. With your nutria fanny pack. Jacques is a trapper with his nutria fanny pack and he wants to know more. I'm also a consumer of other nutria products, but we can get into that later. (laughs) The Uh, dog treats, right? (laughs) Yeah, my dog (laughs) loves nutria dog treats that are marsh dog. They taste like grass because they eat so much grass. That's what they say. But but anyway, so getting back to the trapping. If I'm a trapper and I want to learn more and get involved in the program, where do I go, Nikki? So any trappers can go to Nutria.com 
and register (laughs) for the program and read all the rules and regulations. But so it's real easy to remember nutria.com. I'm surprised that URL wasn't taken. I know. I (laughs) lucked out with that one. No, but that's great. So, um, and you can learn more about what you need to do in terms of getting, you know, whatever kind of licenses or whatever to to be able to do that. Um, And so kind of shifting a little bit to, um, you know, some of the innovative products that have come out. We've mentioned a few, uh, fanny packs and dog treats in particular, but have you seen that and have you encouraged um, businesses to kind of take part in helping to control the nutria population? So we definitely think it's great when businesses want to, you know, make a a creative effort um, to help promote the program, but also for them to find a way to uh, make a use of the discarded carcasses because, you know, the bounty is just for the tails. Right, right. Good point. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, the Marsh Dog treats are fantastic. Uh, there's also a company called Righteous Fur. Yeah. Held, yeah. you know, fur fashion shows. And I think Bitnep did a fur and, fashion yeah. show one time. Yep. 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 So we think things like that are fantastic. And, you know, if we can make a a market for Nutria products and have them in high demand, that's even better. You're not worried about Beignet's tail, um, (laughs) are you? Who's Beignet? Uh, So Beignet is um, Jonathan Foray with the South Louisiana Wetlands Discovery Center. Um, Nikki, this is right. That's um, Jonathan's pet Nutria. And sometimes he teams up with Quipra um, at Terrebonne Coastal Day. Actually, Jonathan brought, um, you guys were there, and y'all brought beignet to kind of get people, I mean, most people um, maybe don't even get to see a nutria up close. And like I said, they look cute and furry. They have those really nasty teeth. But, you know, beignet gives an opportunity to educate, educate. people. Well, he, uh, he also made an appearance at State of the Coast. Mm, I met yeah. him there. You could take a selfie with beignet, I think. <laughs> So, Jacques, did you have your Nutria fanny pack on when you met Beignet? No, it was business casual, he so I was trying to keep it. He probably would have bitten you with those yeah. nasty yellow teeth, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, Nikki, so any other um, programs that, like you were talking about, the invasive species, um, the giant Sylvania, right? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, great. Um, so, it's uh, called the Sylvania Weevil Propagation Facility. Um, oh, my. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. So fancy. <laughs> Um, but so, uh, the gist of it is that, uh, we're bringing in these, uh, weevils, which is, you know, a little oh, bug mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. apparently really like to eat giant salvinia. And so we are, you know, I, I'm trying to think where we're shipping them in from. I think LSU Ag Center, uh, I think I saw a picture the a other day. partner in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're, uh, they're providing us with lots of weevils and we're, Putting them on all the salvinia we can. So, Nikki, y'all, y'all, um, y'all do traditional restoration projects, but projects just like this, and and probably even the weevils that that comes to y'all as like innovative things too. So, y'all also have a program where y'all look at new, fresh ideas that y'all could basically test, right? Like demo projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whenever we have those RPT meetings at the beginning of the year, uh, businesses and people with these creative ideas can also propose demonstration projects. Cool. Cool. Um, so we like to ask a fun question um, to Nikki. This is the part of the program where we um, ask fun questions. Um, we, I think we already asked one of our last Asian carp guests if they were an invasive species, what species would they be? <laughs> but I like the question, question that we, we asked um, Alex Coker last week. Um, if you were stranded on a, um, a barrier island, what three things would you bring with you? Oh, goodness. Some sunscreen? <laughs> <laughs> 
Very important. <laughs> that was better than Alex to yeah. say it. Through, <laughs> uh, oh, goodness. Uh, no Nutria. Then you'd be no. stuck on the island with them. Give me. Or you would have to bring coyotes to eat the nutrients. Good book, too. I don't know. Good book. (laughs) Maybe some water. You know, you got to stay hydrated. There you go. A water bottle with a little filter in it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for coming on the show. And again, can you remind our audience where they can go to learn more about Quipra as well as where to follow you on social media, get adorable pictures of Beignet, and then learn about all the great (laughs) projects that you're supporting through your, um, you know, your program? Right. So all information on the program and our projects can be found on lacoast.gov. And you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Quipra. And if you are a trapper who wants to get in the game. Nutria.com. Nutria.com. I'm going to check that out. I like it. (laughs) Nikki, we are so grateful that you joined us today and shared your information, not just about Quipra, but about some of the great programs that y'all do to help our coast. So thank you, Nikki. We hope to have you on soon. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Simone Laws with Restore Retreat. And I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. Uh, we are discussing an important topic that's been in the news a lot lately, invasive species. So we were just talking Nutria with Nikki Cavalier from Quipra. And we're excited to have back on the show Dr. Andy Nyman, Professor of Wetland Wildlife Ecology with LSU School of Renewable Natural Resources. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Dr. Nyman. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Great. Well, so let's talk a little bit. I mean, last time you were on the show, we were talking about the abundance of wildlife and flora and fauna that comprise the coast and why the coast is important for that reason. But there are also some species that are not as welcome, correct? So tell us a little bit about invasive species, how they come up to be, and why they're a problem. Yeah, invasive species are just things that are upsetting the way that people are used to having, you know, the environment work, you know. We depend upon the environment for, you know, food, uh, seafood. People like to hunt, eat those things. And uh, when uh, a newcomer comes in and upsets the cart, it affects our things we eat, thing, things we sell, and uh, people don't like it. So invasive species is just something that's becoming more common than it used to be and causing problems that we don't like. And, and Dr. Nyman, a lot of the problem is, is that they don't also have predators, right? So in, in the case of some of the species like nutria or, or like even, you know, little organisms and plants, they don't, they don't have anything to really attack them because they're not supposed to be here in the first place. Well, now, now you're talking about exotic species. Mm-hmm. And the exotic species are not from here. But sometimes even our native species can become invasive. Ah, good uh, clarification. So, yeah, so you know, like the Florida Everglades is having a big problem with cattail taking over the cut grass, and it's cattail was there in a rare amounts, but because of nutrients, uh, the, the cattail is taken over, and it's changing the vegetation, which changes the fish, which changes the birds, and you know, having a big effect over there. So, you know, you're right. Most of our invasive species are exotic, and they are not from here, and they don't have their predators. But sometimes even um, native species can become invasive and cause a problem. I clearly should have taken your class. <laughs> There's still time. I'm a fast <laughs> so we were talking a little bit before in the prior segments about Nutria, and I know, I mean, you've studied and been out on the coast. I mean, have you so noticed any noticeable trends with Nutria and kind of how they're managed or how that problem is dealt with? Yeah, so the, 
Well, first of all, don't call them a swamp rat, please. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get my wife to eat them. Oh, they taste like grass. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's what they say because oh, they... they <laughs> yes, they, they, they do have a good taste. I enjoy them. They taste uh, to me like rabbits, which mm. is you know, a little bit of something different, but not, you know, not uh, very gamey at all. Uh, but, you know, that's the problem. You know, back in the 1970s, when I... I'm that old. I first started going out in the marsh. You didn't see a lot of nutrient because there was a market demand for them, and people went out and trapped them and sold them. And we didn't eliminate the nutrient that way, but we kept them at populations low enough that you didn't see a problem. But when uh, that demand ended in the 1980s, that's when we started seeing nutrient be a problem, including in the canals, Jefferson Parish, and throughout the coastal marshes. And uh, and then also the bounty. Uh, you know, as a wildlifer. Yeah, I was taught that bounties fail. When they, when Quipro proposed that uh, nutrient control program, I got admit I predicted it'd be a failure because these things have usually failed. Uh, well, not I take that back. We always talk about the failures, but this program was done right. They focused on the damage to the vegetation, and that's how they. That's their goal is to reduce vegetation damage, and they measure success by measuring vegetation damage, not by measuring how many nutrients they kill or how many uh, dollars they spend. And so uh, you saw a lot of damage early uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s, and, and you don't see that much anymore because of that Quipper program y'all talked about. Well, that's great. And again, Nutria.com if you want to kind of be a part of that. So shifting gears a little bit to another invasive species that really started to come in the news, I think several months ago, but there's been more and more uh, coverage of it as it's spread. Um, so there's a, an, an insect, an invasive insect that's damaging rosacane along the coast. Tell us a little bit about this and, you know, how this insect came to Louisiana and what, what it's doing to our rosacane. Yeah, well, let's start with the rosacane. So uh, <clears throat> people familiar with the marsh probably know what it is, but uh, maybe not everyone is. And so uh, it's, uh, it's like a skinny bamboo. It can be very tall, you know, over 10 feet tall. It's got bigger leaves than bamboo. Uh, it grows in patches the size of a room to an acre to hundreds of acres. Uh, there used to be some along Bayou St. John there in New Orleans 15 years or so ago. I, I don't drive that way uh, much anymore. I'm not sure if it's still there or not. And so that's the plant we're talking about. And it, it's that plant has uh, been a part of our landscape for decades here in Louisiana. Now, that same rosocane, which the Latin name is Phragmites, by the way, and spelled with a P-H in case anyone wants to Google it. That's a good uh, Scrabble word. (laughs) It is a great Scrabble word. It is a great Scrabble word. My husband would get triple bonus or something on that. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a good one. But so uh, the rosocane is considered invasive on the Atlantic coast of the United States and up in uh, the Great Lakes. But here on the Gulf Coast, it's, uh, it's not a problem. In Europe, they love it. In Asia, they love the rosocane. And uh, so our rosocane is, is a part of our landscape, especially uh, a small part of much of our, a small part of almost all of our landscape. And it's very important at the mouth of the river. Now, this bug you mentioned, I was first, people, people tried to tell me about it last fall and winter, but I just, I, I wasn't getting it. And it wasn't until April when the first news reports hit that I, and that then I got my eyes opened and I can see what's going on. And uh, so we've got an insect out there that is, uh, uh, seems to be killing the rosocane. The rosocane is dying, and uh, some places it's not coming back and not being replaced by anything. And so, I mean, in terms of why that is important, right, like I think this rosocane provides important habitat for birds and other species. But why else, you know, is this, um, you know, a problem and something that we should really be paying attention to? 
Yeah, so, you know, in most places of the coast, uh, it's a small part of the landscape, and you're right, it's great, ne- it's so thick, it's great nesting habitat for uh, uh, rails, for example, and also red-winged blackbirds seem to like it, and there's uh, probably more birds than use it than that. Uh, but at the mouth of the river, uh, down around Venice, it is the dominant plant on the landscape, and as we're, and it, this plant, uh, the rosocane is what dominates all the passes of the river, as the river uh, discharges out to the Gulf of Mexico, and it also dominates a lot of very uh, uh, water two to three feet deep um, that other plants can't survive in, and only the rosocane can. And as we're losing the rosocane, it's dying, and then uh, it sprouts back up again from the roots, and then that seems to be dying, and we see the process. uh, It looks like it's been happening for at least a couple of deaths and regrowths, and nothing's replacing it in the shallow water. And so at the mouth of the river, it's the dominant wildlife habitat. And it also protects the oil and gas and the uh, facilities and the camps down there from storm surge. And it slows the speed at which salt water from tropical storms pushes up into the mouth of the river. It uh, also helps keep the water in the navigation channel so that it uh, helps reduce our dredging cost. And and because it's at the mouth of the river where so many things and ships and everything pass, I mean, there was this fear initially that it could spread quickly, and it seems like it may already have to places like Terrebonne and Lafourche, and that's probably because some of the same ships or barges that may brush up against it in the mouth of the river end up in the GIWW and those kinds of things, right? I mean, is, is that a good way to, to it, it's spreading, right? And it, it's yeah. Well, that's that might be what has been going mm-hmm. on, but we're, we're really not sure. You know, some of the uh, I've gone back and looked at some of my pictures. You know, so I don't go out and take pictures of rosocane, um, but I have pictures from the marsh that have rosocane in it, going back to 2009, off in the mouth of the river. And all of a sudden, it is looking at my pictures. I think it may have started as early as 2014. Okay. Um, Mr. Armstrong uh, is a landowner down there. He thinks, I asked him about a month or so ago, and he thinks in hindsight it's been there for a couple of years. Um, and it may be coming on the, the the ships that you mentioned, but it may have, the, the tiny insects may have come in on a duck. You know, some ducks go up and nest up in uh, uh, far north of Canada, Alaska, and sometimes they make a wrong turn and go to Asia, and sometimes they, you know, birds that are, for instance, there was a duck banded in Japan uh, probably about 10, 15 years ago that about five years ago was shot in Mississippi. So, you know, ducks move around. could have been by a bird. could have been by people uh, on ships, like you say. could have been with the bamboo poles that come in and we put all over the marsh for surveying. We just don't know how long it's been here or, or how it's spreading. So that's all part of the process, so trying to figure out you know, where it came from, and then then also how to deal with it, right? So I think when we get back from the break, Dr. Nyman, if you'll stay with us for a little bit, we'll get a little bit uh, into it a little bit more. Um, But during the break, if you want to find out more information, Tristan Barrick, who've had on the show before with the Times, Vicki Yoon, has done a lot of reporting on this topic. He, um, online right now, has a visual guide to the plague killing Louisiana's rosocane, and we uh, suggest that you check it out. It's a, it's a great uh, overview of it, and he, he does really dive into some details, too. So that's on NOLA.com. Right now, you're listening to Delta Dispatches, and we'll be back with Dr. Nyman. And Welcome it- back to... Oh, excuse me. Did me step on your toes? Welcome back. The Delta Dispatches. This is Samoma Laws with Restore Retreat. And this is Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. 
Um, Dr. Nyman, I don't know if Jacques did this when uh, he interviewed you earlier, but um, we like to ask a fun question of everybody. Um, and so we want to open up with that. So I hear you're a big baseball, LSU baseball fan. Towards the end of every season. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you who your favorite player was, but that's such a great answer. I'm going to leave it alone at that. Um, I, I love to watch I got, LSU. I, I, had, I had a pitcher in one of my classes about oh. a decade ago, Lewis Coleman. I do. Up. He was very good. He played in the majors for a long time, right? Yes, he did. He, mm. he, was, he took a wildlife class. He probably knew your invasive versus exotic speech. <laughs> I'm sure he's, he's, he's forgotten all about that by now. <laughs> he's probably counting his money right now, if you might. Well, let's get back to the matter at hand. So, so we were talking a little bit about the problem, right, with this uh, invasive scale and how it's affecting rosocaine and, you know, why people should care about it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the response and, you know, some of the pe- the solutions people are throwing out there. So when something like this happens, Dr. Nyman, who is responsible or who's called together? And can you tell us a little bit about the groups that are working to address this issue right now? Yeah, so, you know, all, if it was, uh, if we were dealing with an agricultural crop, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has a section called Wildlife Services that would deal with this. Uh, and this isn't into the crops uh, that we know of, and so they're not involved yet. And so right now it's kind of up to the, the state uh, to do something. And, you know, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries is very concerned because they, they manage uh, some of that land down there. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is concerned, but budgets are tight, and so they're trying to put some money together to do some of the research that uh, that the situation calls for. You know, I, I guess, you know, we, you know there, I guess there are four things we could do, and one could, we could just do nothing and hope everything gets better and everything comes back. You know, that certainly is, a, is an option for us, but uh, if we're going to do something, we've got to figure out what to do. And so what are some of those uh, options that are being considered? I heard something about um, a wasp. I also heard, you know, burn-offs, um, introducing European cane or rosocane. So can you talk through some of the things that are being considered as a way to manage this um, invasive species? Yes, yeah, so all of those are on the table. Before I get to that one, though, I want to talk, one of the first things we need to do is really be sure that this insect that uh, is, we think is new to North America, it's from Asia, uh, this is the first time it's been reported in North America. But we need to make sure that it's really the thing that's killing the rosocane. Most of the, the pieces of the puzzle suggest that it is. You know, you go to a dead, catch of, dead patch of rosocane, and you almost always find that bug there. But not always. I've, I've seen uh, several dead patches over by uh, uh, Golden Meadow I looked at a couple weeks ago. And they were dead, but there were no uh, bugs on them. And over by Rockefeller Refuge, they're dead patches and uh, no rosocane, uh, no scale bug that I could find. And so we're not positive yet that it is that bug. It probably is, but we're not positive yet. So one of the things we've got to do is figure out if it's a bug. But we have enough information saying that it is a bug, so let's go ahead and, and talk about the, the wasp that you mentioned. One of the, uh, so you can think of the, the, the scale bug as a parasite on the rosocane. It's sucking the sap out of the rosocane, sucking all the life out of it, and uh, it's a parasite. It turns out that the scale bug has its own parasite, parasites. Actually, they're parasitoids, which is different. So like if the rosocane dies, then the scale bug dies. But a parasitoid is different. It's more like the, the movie Alien. A wasp will lay its eggs inside the living 
scale bug, and then before she can finish her life cycle and reproduce, the eggs will kill the scale bug, and the babies will crawl out and kill her, and they'll grow on and make a new generation of these wasps. In fact, we've got three of these wasps here already, which is one of the things that suggests that the scale bug is not new to coastal Louisiana. It's, it's, it's kind of odd that a, a new insect would show up with three parasites all its own right away. Just like earlier on, we talked about exotic species lacking natural predators. We've already got three natural predators of the scale bug here. So that's some of the research we need to do. Yeah, just showing the importance of really understanding the problem, you know, before you you act. Because, right, I mean, some of these solutions that are being considered could have effects that may not be necessarily, you know, help. I mean, they could be harmful in some ways. Um, and I know, you know, this has been a problem I read um, in China as well. And, and I think there they've managed uh, managed it with burnoffs. Is that correct? Yeah, they burn it. and So their brosocane uh, grows... Uh they actually grow it on, you know, they kind of cultivate it uh, for uh, paper, uh, fiber. for, And uh, so they can bur- burn it off, and it burns off the insect and knocks it back. Burning it will work in some of our marshes where the uh, elevation's higher, but at the mouth of the river where rosocane is extremely important, the water's too deep, and there's not enough litter on the ground to carry the fire. So fire probably isn't going to work for us where we most need to uh, fight the problem. Uh, other things to mentioned is, you know, using, you know, we spray for mosquitoes all the time. Why don't we spray for the scale bug? Well, there's two reasons. Well, one, the scale bug, it, it crawl when they're tiny, they crawl down in between the, the stem and the leaf right next to the stem. So they're really protected. They don't, they're not open to the air. So an insecticide wouldn't get on them. You'd have to get an insecticide that would be absorbed into the plant and then go into the bug. And then it'd be easier for our insecticides to kill those good wasps that are killing the scale bug. And so uh, insecticides are not something we want to jump onto. And what about, um, you know, uh, introducing European rosocane? Is that an option as well? Well, sort of, uh, but it's already here. In fact, uh, some preliminary data... uh, uh, collected by Dr. Jim Cronin and Rodrigo Diaz uh, here at LSU, um, shows that uh, the, there are patches of European ro- uh, Phragmites, rosocane, already down in the mouth of, of the Mississippi River. And those stands are much healthier and have much fewer bugs on them, the scale bugs on them, than the stands right next to them that are, that are dying. And so the, you know, and that this would really irritate some people on the Atlantic coast and Gulf, uh, Great Lakes to hear that we were actually spreading the European because they hate it. But you know, it might uh, it might spread on its own without our help, it's, uh, or maybe we could actually accelerate its spread into some of the areas that are lacking uh, uh, losing its vegetation. Well, Dr. Nyman, thank you for being on with us today. I'm glad I got to join in this interview. I know Jacques had you all to himself last time. We were very, excuse me, very grateful for for all of the information that you shared. I think LSU Ag, you just mentioned um, some some guys that work there, but they have some great information and even like a little handout available for people who uh, want more information on Rosocane. Again, Times Picayune's done a really great job covering it. Um, and we've, we've also on MRD, right? Have a yeah. blog. We have a blog on our um, website, um, MississippiRiverDelta.org. And Dr. Nyman, yeah, thank you so much for being on. And clearly this isn't 
a problem that is necessarily going to go away anytime soon. So hopefully we can have you back on for an update. All right. Thank you all very much. Thank you. All right, Jacques, what do you have coming up this week? Well, uh, you know, next week actually is an important hearing on Capitol Hill. Um, the House Natural Resources Committee is doing a hearing on GOMESA, right? So we've talked a lot about the importance of protecting funding under GOMESA. Um, our coalition, Restore the Mississippi River Delta, still has an action alert live that will go to members of Congress um, asking them to protect funding for GOMESA. Um, and so you can go online to MississippiRiverDelta.org um, and take action there and support GOMESA. Great, great. And we can you can still find this episode and all of our previous episodes online as well. Yeah, go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash Delta Dispatches. I think we're up to, oh my gosh, episode 16? Yeah. Yeah, wow. 18. We've been on the show. We've been doing this it for a while. We're just pros. Yeah. yeah, but you can get all of the archives and listen to previous episodes, catch up, subscribe. We appreciate your listening. Yep. And you can check out a Nutria blog on our Facebook page, uh, which is Restore or Retreat. Uh, we'll see you guys next week with more information about the mid baritaria scoping meeting. Yeah, we're going to have hopefully some experts on to discuss that. Um, but you can also go on our Facebook, um, Restore the Mississippi River Delta to get details on those scoping meetings. You've been listening to Delta Dispatches. Thanks again and have a great week.